0: Hello, and welcome to the Lancet Microbe in Conversation. I'm Rebecca Barksby, one of the editors at the Journal. It's January 2024, and on this episode, I'm talking to Dr. Nancy Chow. Dr. Chow is Deputy Chief at the Mycotic Diseases Branch at the US Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, commonly known as the CDC. In this role, she oversees laboratory activities for fungal disease detection, outbreak response, research and prevention, both in the USA and internationally. At the CDC, Dr. Chow works with partners at the intersection of epidemiology, microbiology and programmatic implementation to identify and control the spread of emerging and antimicrobial resistant fungal infections. For this podcast, we are talking about a research paper published in The Lancet Micro entitled Emergence of Zoonotic Sporotrichosis in Brazil, a Genomic Epidemiology Study. First of all, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for coming on. I wanted to start by simply asking, what is
1: sporotrichosis? Well, thanks, Rebecca. And it's wonderful to be here to talk about sporotrichosis because this disease is just definitely not talked about enough. So, sporotrichosis, and some simply call it sporo, is a fungal infection that's actually listed as a neglected tropical disease by the WHO. The World Health Organization. And in addition to affecting people, it can also affect animals. Uh, we see a lot of infections in cats. And sporotrichosis can present in many different ways clinically, but the most common one is a skin infection, where a lot of times it can start off simply as a bump on the hand or the arm, a painless bump. And then over the course of weeks, it can then spread To multiple bumps, forming lesions, ulcerative-like lesions, abscesses. And in some cases, it's rarer, but for those that have a weakened immune system, those who aren't getting treated, it can progress to a severe disseminated infection where it can spread to other parts of the body, affecting organs like the bone, the brain. So that's how it presents. And we know that in terms of what causes it, it's caused by a fungus called Sporothrix, which is a dimorphic fungus. And that's just a fancy way of saying that it can convert between two forms the mold form and the yeast form. The mold is generally the infectious form, and the yeast is generally a non infectious form. Um, and for a while, we thought that there was only one species of Sporothrix, and it was called Sporothrix shankii. With all of the advanced molecular technologies we have, we know that there are several species, uh, including Sporthrix brasiliensis, which is the focus of this study, but other ones like Sporthrix globosa. And all of these species, they live in the environment, in the natural environment. So we find them in soil, in plant material like decaying wood, moss, hay. And that's the way, the medium in which humans and animals can become infected. And so some, some people listening to this may have heard of spore being called rose gardener's disease because we've seen uh, a lot of cases and even some outbreaks among people who are gardening, where they get cuts and scrapes on their hands and then the fungus can be introduced that way. But what we've seen and what we really want to call attention to is this rise of zoonotic spore that in the last couple of decades, and we've seen it in South America, the epicenter of this epidemic, there's an epidemic in Brazil, is happening of cat-transmitted sporotrichosis, And it's really changing the paradigm of how we think about fungal infections. Because for the first time, we're seeing a dimorphic fungus that in its yeast form, when it's infecting a host, that it can then transmit to another host. It can transmit to another cat or to a human. And that's unprecedented for fungal infections.
0: That's so interesting. I didn't know it was called Rose Gardner's disease. The reason I wanted to start with that just general question is because we really don't see a lot of papers on this uh, fungal infection. And it got me wondering what, what, what The Lancet published on it before. And the first record I could find is from 1911. Um, so not the long mm. after the first um, case had been described. And I think the reason it's in the Lancet at that time was because it was the first case in England. And at that time, the Lancet really only cared about what was going on in the UK. Uh, um, right. But the, the first line of that paper from 1911 is um, the disease known as sporotrichosis seems to be sufficiently rare to justify the publication of notes. And it's basically the same today in the editorial meeting when your paper came in. But the first question from a lot of editors um, was, what is sporotrichosis?" And then when I went through what your paper was in the peer reviews, um, the comments were, well, this seems like it's worthy of publication. So it's not actually that different from all those years ago in 1911. Anyway, um, <laughs> more than 100 years. I know. I know. So thanks for the overview. Um, could you just describe how many cases are there now, and where are these cases mainly found?
1: Many might think that that is a simple question to it should it, it should be a simple question to answer, but it, it really isn't, and it's because for most fungal infections and sporotrichosis is no exception, we do not have good, robust, systematic surveillance systems, and that goes worldwide. Uh, in the surveillance systems that we do have are generally laboratory surveillance where it's convenience collection. But based on the data that we do have, that said, uh, the published data, the published report, some of the most recent estimates have put a number of about 40,000 cases per year of sporotrichosis globally. And when we look at the map, of countries reporting sporotrichosis, it's all over. So we see it in the Americas. We see it in parts of Europe. You just mentioned that paper from way back when, uh, in Africa, Asia, Australia, but there are certainly areas that look to be more endemic or where we find it more, uh, particularly in South America, in Brazil. And again, we're seeing this epidemic of cat transmitted spore trichosis there. But we're also seeing it as well, uh, a substantial number of cases being reported from Southern Africa and South Africa, as well as in Asian countries, including China, Malaysia. And then in terms of the geographic distribution of those species that we mentioned, it really varies, and and that's typical of, of fungal pathogens. We see that Sporothrix schenckii is the most widespread, uh, located in terms of seeing it all over the Americas, Asia, Africa. Globosa is a little bit more limited, mostly in Asia, but then Sporothrix brasiliensis is very unique in that it's really only found in South America. There have been some limited reports of Sporthrix brasiliensis* in, uh, in other countries, including the UK. But when you look at those cases, it's just a handful. They have very strong epidemiologic links to Brazil. So it really does seem like Sporthrix brasiliensis* is just in South America right now.
0: I think you've uh, answered what I was going to ask next, because that was going to be, what was the rationale for this uh, genomic epidemiology study in Brazil? Is there anything you'd want to
1: add to that? Yeah, I would add that going into this study, we wanted to try to better understand how sporthrix Braziliensis emerged and how it spread in Brazil. And there was really two competing hypotheses going into it. The first was that a single strain of Sporthrix brasiliensis emerged in Rio de Janeiro, which is the state that first reported cases of, of Sporthrix brasiliensis as far back as the, the 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 mid-1990s were seeing outbreaks of it. And then from there that it's spread into other states throughout Brazil. So that's one hypothesis. And the second hypothesis is that it's actually multiple lineages or subtypes of sporothrix brasiliensis that have emerged, that they've independently appeared uh, in Rio de Janeiro as well as other states, and then they then spread, having transmission within states and between states. So we wanted to take this collection, which is the largest collection of genomic sequences of Sporthrix brasiliensis, representing seven states in Brazil, to try to answer this question. And there have been some great studies that have come before this, especially from some of our Dutch colleagues that have showed that it really the data supports the latter h- hypothesis, the second one. So we wanted to take this robust collection and try to answer that question. And then the other rationale uh, was just that we wanted to take advantage of this network of partnerships that many of us know that it takes to do this type of work. We've got a lot of strong collaborators, reference laboratories in Sao Paulo and Mato Grosso do Sul that allowed for this collection to be possible. And the lead author, Amanda Santos, she's from Mato Grosso do Sul, she helped uh Foster those collaborations so that we could answer a question like this. And what were the main findings of your research? Well, dun dun dun, it came to be that the data supported that second hypothesis where there have been multiple lineages, or we call them clades in the paper, that have independently emerged in states in Rio de Janeiro as well as Sao Paulo, Distrito Federal. And they then have spread to other states in Brazil. And what we found is that there were five distinct lineages. And when we looked at them, they were very genetically distinct, very genetically different. About hundreds of thousands of SNPs or single nucleotide polymorphisms, genetic differences. And when you look at the genome of sporothrix, it's about 32 million base pairs. So hundreds of thousands of SNPs. That's on the order of about a third to one percent of the genome, which is very substantial. And then when you look within those clades, the differences, the genetic differences were much smaller. And for some clades on the order of just a couple of hundred of SNPs., uh, so that really points its suggestive of this transmission that's happening for some of these clades that are found, in multiple different states, up to five states, including cat and human cases, where we're seeing cat-to-cat transmission, cat-to-human transmission. Um, so, so that's what we, we overall found. The second more s- subtler finding is that there were a handful of cases of sporthric shankii infections. And it was just a small number, because again, this is, this is limited laboratory surveillance. But when you did look at them, they, they had their distinct clades as well. But the genetic diversity was much higher. It was about 60 times higher than that of what we saw with the clades of S. braziliensis. And so it points to we're seeing less transmission cat to cat, cat to human of Sporthrix shankii than we are of Sporthrix braziliensis.
0: That leads perfectly on to my next question. What could be the reasons for the dominance of Brasiliensis? I know that wasn't necessarily the 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 aim of your paper to find that, but what what kind of hypotheses do you think? It's
1: it's it's a hard question, and in terms of the dominance of *Sporothrix brasiliensis*, at least worldwide, we're we're seeing that it's it's really mostly *Sporothrix schenckii* that's being reported. But certainly in South America and Brazil for that dominance, I think whatever reasons we can start to hypothesize have to be in the context of what we know to be the primary driver of transmission of sporotrichosis, which is the cats. And so maybe there's something that is unique, something maybe genetically unique, genetic elements in sportrix Braziliensis that predispose it to being able to infect cats or to allow it to have higher amounts of infectious yeast in cats so that cats then can go and spread it on to other cats or to humans. There might be an ecological niche, maybe like an animal reservoir, that's specific to South America. Maybe we see it more in Brazil, that might be the animal reservoir of Sporothrix brasiliensis. We just don't know. And maybe that animal reservoir comes into contact with cats to be able to infect them. And then maybe lastly, the, the only other thing that we, we kind of keep thinking about is it might just simply be that Sporothrix brasiliensis is more in the environment. There's a higher burden of it in, in, in South America than Sporothrix schenckii. And if that's the case, that's not unusual, especially for some of these dimorphic fungi. And it makes us think about, in the future, the, the potential impacts of climate and environmental changes, because we know we've, we've seen some really great modeling studies for uh, a, a, a likely changing geographic distribution for some of these dimorphic fungi in response to climate change. And I don't see why sporotrichosis would be any different.
0: It sounds like there's a lot of un- unanswered questions that need to be addressed for the future. So, what are the implications of your research, or what recommendations do you have for future work? Well, I think there's
1: a a few uh, implications. Maybe the most direct one is just thinking about how these findings can be used for public health control of spore trichosis. I like to think of it as sort of when you're, you're weeding your garden, and if my husband were, were listening to this, he would he would laugh because he'd be like, well, you, you never weed the garden, Nancy. <laughs> it's me that weeds the garden. Anyway, but it, it, the analogy is that you can have weeds popping up in your garden, and you go in and you try to control them, you pluck them, you do whatever you need to do, And then in another space, you know, further away from that, you've got another pop-up of weeds in your garden, and you've got to go control that. And it's a similar thing when talking about these genetically distinct lineages. When we're thinking about how fungal pathogens are emerging and spreading, where we're seeing cases, in this case, starting off in Rio de Janeiro, It's not just that we can think of places that are epidemiologically connected or that there's a strong connection to Rio de Janeiro where spread and transmission can happen. We know the data is showing that it can be really any areas of Brazil. And when you widely more think about other countries like that are reporting these types of infections, Argentina, Uruguay, Paraguay, Chile, it can pop up there independently and then spread And so you can have a little bit of both. And so when you think about the resources that you have to um, put in order to be able to, um, to, 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 to control types of infections, you then have to just consider where these things can be introduced from, but as well as where they can emerge from. And then maybe the other implication is that when we're talking about genomic surveillance and epidemiology of fungal diseases that that it be included in the 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 overall conversation of genomic surveillance i know that last year you you had a nice episode on genomic surveillance of amr and all too often fungal diseases are missed from that conversation it's mostly focusing on viral infections bacterial infections but we have to remember the eukaryotic ones like parasitic and fungal infections because this work shows that we can do that type of thing, that we can do genomic sequencing and pair the clinical and the epidemiologic data. It's difficult because a lot of these fungal genomes are much larger. We have to consider ploidy and we have to consider uh, repetitive elements in terms of the analysis, but it's possible. And then lastly, I would just say that using this as a springboard to raise awareness to fungal disease public health. We don't have enough diagnostics, like gold standard, rapid point-of-care diagnostics. We don't have enough antifungal drugs, and we don't have any fungal vaccines. And so having, even let's say in the case of sporotrichosis, a fungal vaccine for cats, that could be a game changer in this situation. So
0: Wow, a lot to do, and it's a good uh, It's good that you've got this paper published with us. I wonder, um, the paper I mentioned, then from 1911, where the patient was uh, an 18-year-old, an 18-and-three-quarters, an sorry, year-old female who had been a healthy child, and they didn't know how she could have possibly got this fungal infection.
1: I wonder if she'd been tending to her roses in, in London. It could have been, and... Some of the efforts that we have in just in terms of communications with healthcare providers, we hope can help uh, prevent missed diagnoses because that's what we often see. Because even now, there are a lot of healthcare providers that, if they saw an unexplained lesion as a result of a cat bite, they might not think of spore and and rightly so in many ways, because we need to get the word out there. Yeah, she was uh, initially misdiagnosed as
0: syphilis, I think, in the the paper. Okay, well, thank you so much. That has been absolutely fascinating. I'm hoping that we get a lot more fungal experts
1: on for podcasts. Um, Is there anything else that you would like to say? Just to say thank you for this time and Of course, thanks to all of the partners and collaborators that helped make this study possible, and I've really enjoyed being here.
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much. You can read the research by Dr. Chow and colleagues online now at thelancet.com. Thanks to Dr. Chow for joining me, and thank you for listening to this episode of The Lancet Microbe in Conversation. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever you usually get your podcasts.